0: When you think of fraud right we all know when we talk about fraud and as we audit you we talk about internal controls right so everybody kind of takes their internal controls and builds up this wall right and we build up a wall so that we don't have fraud and we have all these internal controls that we have them all written down because as auditors we always ask and you know maybe a board asks and you can hand this nice piece of paper and say here you go here's our internal controls and this is what we do but that wall sometimes is for looks. And I know that we have good controls, but sometimes the fraudster may get close to us. The fraudster may be a really good employee. The fraudster is likable. The fraudster is someone we trust. In that wall of internal controls that we've built, sometimes in the normal course of operations, we might say, you know what? Let's skip a step on that internal controls. And the fraudster does that and goes over the wall and then it's easily committed fraud. And it's not that we as an organization don't have good internal controls. We've had weaknesses in our internal controls because we had someone who we like, know, and trust, and we've let them circumvent the internal controls. So through this session, you know, hopefully, I'm trying to get everyone to think about what is a fraudster thinking about, what's the different types of scams, so that even though you might have really good internal controls, that fraudster can't step over the wall. So none of the stuff that we're going to talk about today is stuff that you haven't heard before. It's not stuff that you don't know. It's really kind of making you more aware of it so that you can think about that fraudster to prevent that. So we're going to look, understand how to prevent fraud. Thinking about the fraudster, we want to know controls plus monitoring. And then we also always want to create the perception of detection within our organizations. So fraud can be range from simple to complex schemes. And so when you think of a simple scheme, you know, a very easy scheme could be stealing checks, right? That's very simple, doesn't take a lot of complexity. You know, to a complex scheme could be a pyramid scheme or a lapping scheme where you might be, you know, taking receivables and applying someone's payment to the someone else's receivable balance. And then you keep doing that. And again, that ta- that's a very complex scheme, and it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of very careful planning to be able to do that. Fraud has no boundaries. Small organizations and large organizations all experience fraud. You know, fraud has become very easy with technology. ATM machines make fraud very easy to commit. The fraud has changed, and people are adapting to that change. I mean, as James had mentioned earlier, how many people are victims of phishing schemes? It's a lot. So, what are some of the traits of a fraudster? They're greedy, they're arrogant, right? They think that they can't be caught. They rationalize their behavior. They develop trust, as I said at the very beginning. The fraudster, the first thing they're gonna do in an organization is try to develop trust and be helpful to get the organizations to, remember, if we talk about you have internal controls and you have good controls, well, that fraudster needs to find a way around that control, so they're gonna try to develop that trust. Sometimes they lack empathy, and they understand how to use the financial institutions. What I'm talking about here is, again, the ATM machines the different types of mechanisms to transfer funds they really kind of master those to use them to their advantage so if we look at the fraud triangle we have pressure right we have the pressure of the of you know from an outside source whether it's pressure from your bosses whether it's financial pressure from the outside you know there's some type of pressure that's involved there you have opportunity this wall here, they've identified a way to get around the wall, so there's an opportunity to commit fraud, and then there's the rationalization. You know, so they're able to go and rationalize why they should commit fraud. A good example of this is a few years ago, I was at a conference. Andrew Fastow, who was the CEO of Enron, uh, or the CFO of Enron, spoke. And this was after he had already served his jail time. He was talking, he explained his whole situation, and at the end... The question came up of whether he feels that he really did it. And in his mind, he rationalized that what he did may not, you know, was skating on the line of, a, of right or wrong, but he doesn't necessarily feel it was 100% wrong. You know, so that was very interesting. And very, you know, when you think about rationalization, you know, he was able, you know, if you look at what happened with Enron, he rationalized that what he did was a gray area of accounting. Then what happened in 2004, two educators looked at the fraud triangle and really said, okay, well, really, isn't it more of a diamond than a triangle? They changed the pressure to incentive, but what they added was capability. And they said, not only do you need rationalization and the opportunity and either the incentive or the pressure, you also need mentally the capability and the capacity to commit the fraud. We talk about Andrew Fastow with Enron, but there was also Walter Pavlo, who brought down MCI WorldCom? He was stealing money from the company. He was a somewhat of a lower-paid employee, given a lot of responsibility back when MCI was involved in all of these nine hundred numbers, and the companies weren't paying. So he was in charge of going and collecting these debts. What he was realized, you know, he was, you know, he was given all this pressure, and what he was realizing is people weren't paying. So somebody ended up connecting with him and saying, "Hey, let's." factor these receivables, and in the factoring, we'll get a lump sum payment, and what they were doing is they were splitting that money, and then they were putting it on the books. They were also getting some of these clients to sign note agreements that were never going to be paid. They all knew it, but they they were able to kind of get the auditors off their back with having over 90-day receivables to having signed note agreements regardless of what they could pay. So it was this whole big scam, but if you look at it, he had the incentive to do it, because he wasn't getting paid much. You know, he was getting a lot of pressure. He rationalized it because of his pay. He saw people up above him scamming the system because they were telling him, we don't care what you do, you can't have write-offs. He had the opportunity. Would he have done that if he didn't have the mental capacity to do it? Ended up getting caught, you know, kind of squealed on, WorldCom on what they were doing and brought down the company. So what deters the fraudster? The consequences the fear of being caught deters the fraudster. Eventually you know, all frauds are gonna be caught. But ideally what, you know what's gonna defer the fraudster is controls. So if we have good controls in the organization, you know, that's gonna defer the fraudster. And we have to have good preventative controls and detective controls because we know in an organization we can't afford to always have the best preventative controls up front. And we may not have the resources to have all the right preventative controls. So we're not gonna catch the fraud potentially on the front end. But we need to make sure that we have complementary detective controls. So at the end, if fraud is committed, we're able to catch it quickly. So we need to have good preventative controls, detective controls, and tone at the top. And then we need to make sure that those controls are you know, properly implemented. Right? Because when I talk about this wall, if I have an account, you know, if, if I have a process that says, okay, every account's payable check that goes out of the organization. Needs to be approved by the department head with an invoice. So I get an invoice with a department head signature. I bring it to accounting. The accounting clerk enters it into the uh, AP system. My controller then processes the bill, right? The controller takes it, gives it to maybe the CFO or the CEO to sign it. They sign it, and then a third person mails it out. Good controls along the line, everyone's approving it. But what happens when you get that one person who says, listen, I'm a real trusted employee, and I'm not gonna, if any of you are HR people, I'm not gonna pick on you, but a lot of times we see this with HR professionals, right, where they might say, I'm the HR department, I have information that only I can see, right, because everyone else can't see it because it's personal, but I need a check for that, so I need that check to come back with me so I can attach that personal information and mail it out. right? so then we got the department head approving it, Accounts payable entering it, controller running the check, or you know approving it, CFO signing it, and then instead of going to that last person, it goes back to the HR person. Well, that HR person now has a signed check and can do whatever they want with it. And this is a real case that we had where that HR person, that invoices that went all along that line was a fake invoice. And then when it got back to them, they took the check and they deposited it into their own account and. They stole the money. So again, they had great controls, this organization, all along the line, but for one reason, they had a trusted employee who said, we have to break these controls because I need to get the information on my own. So think of that, and that's one example, but how many different times does that happen in an organization where you have good controls but you break down those controls because of someone requesting something? So think of that because I think that's where a lot of times you know, uh, that's where the breakdown is. So when we think like the fraudster, the fraudster tries to gain trust. You know, we wanna make sure that we understand all of the elements of that fraud diamond or the triangle, whichever one you wanna look at. We wanna understand the fraud schemes, both generic schemes and specific schemes. You know, you have to have the right mindset because again, you know, the fraudster's coming into this knowing that they wanna steal. That example that I just used with that accounts payable invoice moving all along the system, If that person at the end who's kind of allowing this breakdown of the system doesn't have the mindset that somebody could be stealing the money down here because it's so easy to take a check made out to whoever and deposit it into my own ATM machine, and a lot of times the bank is not going to notice it, sorry any bankers in here, but a lot of times that you know, with some of the big national banks, it's not going to get caught, right? So if that person down here doesn't have the right mindset, they're going to allow that breakdown to happen. If you have the right mindset, maybe the HR person does need to get that invoice, but you can have other controls and you can have other processes to kind of check that. You don't want to rely on other people to catch fraud for you, right? You need to make sure your own controls and your own systems are gonna catch fraud. So we don't want to say, we're gonna rely on the bank down here when when someone deposits in the ATM to catch our fraud. No, you can't rely on that. You need to make sure your systems are gonna catch that fraud. So again, deconstructing the fraudster. You know, Most have well laid out plans so they know how to exploit systems and people. A lot of times when we talk about fraud, we say cash is king. Follow the cash because usually it's through, you know, I use cash loosely. I'm, I'm talking cash, checks, credit cards, anything like that. But you know, make sure you follow the cash. So really we have three types of frauds when we talk about fraud. We have corruption, we have asset misappropriation, and we have financial statement fraud. You know, Most of us know what asset misappropriation is. You know, Very common, someone's stealing something from us. Financial statement fraud, go back to that MCI example where Walter Pavlov was getting vendor, uh, customers to sign note agreements that he, he knew were never gonna be paid, but he got it off of his AR listing and it's no longer on that 90-day list. So that's, some, uh, that's financial statement fraud. And then corruption. The more people you have involved in a fraud, the more the losses typically. You know, in corruption, in an example of corruption, picture a college or an organization with a big campus that has a lot of facilities. The facilities director in this case bid out contracts for renovations of a facility, they had a lot of windows that needed to replace in their big campus. The facilities director got with three different vendors and said, okay, we have a lot of work that we have to do on these buildings, so each one of you are gonna get a piece of the pie. I'm gonna tell you all what to bill, and I'm gonna tell you who's gonna win each contract, but just don't forget, each one of you are all gonna get a piece of the contract. For doing that, I'm gonna get a piece of the contract. Each company was happy because they got a, a project. The facilities director was happy, he got a lot of money. Uh, And the organization lost a lot of money until somebody from uh, the bank came in and said, these contracts don't make sense. They're much higher. You're paying a much higher rate. And once they started poking around, one of the contractors said, okay, this is what happened. So, you know, that's an example of corruption. So next I'm going to tell a few stories. The first one, a CFO of a small organization ended up stealing a million three from credit card fraud. She had opened up credit cards and most of the employees' names of the small organization, and she had the credit cards, and she was charging all of her personal expenditures. Her and her family dressed really well. They always had very good vacations, and you know, ended up costing uh, the organization a million three. And this was caught because she finally was forced to take a vacation, and when the new person, you know, kind of came in, they found all this. So, and she was hiding it. She was the CFO, and she was doing everything from the first step. To the last step and nobody caught anything so uh, nobody ever said anything that she was doing at all But when she took a vacation they found it the next one was the CEO. I love I like this one This was creative he ended up taking two hundred thousand dollars in additional compensation now This is only one of the pieces of his thing this guy stole a lot of money This is just one component of how he stole two hundred thousand dollars of executive compensation They had a really good process the board approved his, his pay they documented it and they gave it to the HR department. The problem was, when they documented his pay, they sent it to him in an email. The board voted and this is your pay. Then he took it and sent it to the HR department, but when he sent it to the HR, he gave himself a boost. You know, So it wasn't until the board started looking at the Form 990 and said, why is his compensation so much different than what we think it is? And when they went back into the records, they realized that he was giving himself raises. The HR director, the $20,000, that was the example that I told you where where it went back to the HR director. The receptionist stealing $75,000 of contributions. This one here, this was an example of another organization that had really good controls, but the receptionist was getting checks before it went to the accounting department. And the receptionist was taking stuff out of the mail bin, realizing they were checks, opening them and going down to the bank and putting in their own ATM machine. You know, one of the ways to prevent that is the organization ended up going with a lockbox system because they got a lot of checks, small amounts that, that, that weren't expected. You know, organizations that have big large checks that they're expecting, big contributions, you know, you don't necessarily need this. This was an organization that got a lot of small contributions to fund the operations. Controller with credit card refunds. This was an organization that had a lot of credit card transactions, they, they hosted events, Uh, People would pay for the events, such as weddings uh, with credit cards and at the end of the night each night The controller would batch out those credit cards and what he was doing as he batched out the credit cards He swiped his own credit card every night and he issued himself a refund Nobody caught it it went through the bank account, but he was smart enough to do small refunds So he never did a large amount. It was just small steady refunds So when people looked at the bank statement, it never had an account number or a name He would always credit against somebody's invoice and say, you know, for whatever reason the credit was there until they got a new CFO and the CFO said, okay, I need to see what the detail is and they caught that because nobody was asking for the right information before that. The last one, a program director taking some program fees. This was a school that had an after school program. The program director was setting up a shell corporation and taking the checks that came to the program director for the parent fees and were deposited them into their own account. And then what in order to kind of reconcile the account, they were issuing what they were calling refunds to parents. So those are some, some good examples of fraud that we've seen over the years. We have some fraud facts. The Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, every two years they put out this report to the nation on institutional fraud. 2,690 cases is what they looked at, 125 countries in 23 different categories. Total losses in those 2,000 cases, $7 billion. The median loss was $130,000. The duration lasted about 16 months. Asset misappropriation was the biggest in the number of cases, but it was financial statement fraud was the largest dollar amount. Organizations that had some type of whistleblower policy or a tip line caught the fraud 46% of the time where organizations with no hotline only caught it 30% of the time. So it was caught by either tips, 40%, internal audits by 15%, or management review by 13%. This, I think, is very interesting, that only 4% of perpetrators had a prior fraud conviction. You know, Organizations don't necessarily press charges when they see fraud. Uh, A lot of times they know that they're not gonna be able to collect, so they let it go. Why? Because they don't want the publicity. Right bad publicity if you're lying a lot on donors, you know, what does that do? So a lot of times fraud is you know, they're not referred to prosecution so deterring the fraudster Establishing strong internal controls constantly monitoring your processes assessing your processes and testing those and making sure that they work I think being firm on a no tolerance policy is really important in my mind, there's no such thing as a little bit of fraud. Either you commit fraud or you don't commit fraud, and you have to have a no-tolerance policy because if not, you're not set in the right tone. So some next steps: we'll talk about financial statement risk here, but I like an enterprise risk management program. At AAF, we started that probably five years or so ago, and we we have a committee. We've developed it, and it's been a huge success. And it's not so much necessarily to, you know, catch a fraudster but it's to help look at risk within an organization. And we have what I call agents within the firm that come back and report to us and tell us what their processes are, what their groups are doing. We look at that and develop some fraud risk or kind of risk management around that. So if you don't have an enterprise risk management plan, I strongly suggest and urge you to kind of look at that and say, okay, how can we develop something like this and what would the benefits be? Because I think you'll find that there's a lot of benefits to that. And our risk management plan covers everything from our marketing risk, which is reputational, to not doing an audit correctly. So it goes the full range, you know, to our IT system. So it's everything included in there. The key thing is you need to look at your preventative controls, you need to look at your detective controls, and then what's left is your residual risk. You need to look at that residual risk and make sure you're comfortable with that. You know, and a lot of times, you know, people are comfortable with residual risk, but you need to really make sure that it's not just a financial risk but it's also reputational you know you have to keep in mind that residual risk